So good to see everybody. Well, actually, I can't see you, but it's glad to know that you're out there and that you're part of the worship service today. I want to thank the worship team for leading us to God. Glorious, glorious. That's who God really is. Just a couple things I want to remind you of, and that is uh, our restrooms are almost complete. So you got to come August 22nd, and uh, you'll have a chance probably to come in and look around if you want to. We're going to be doing a baptismal service, but you're going to get to see them in their finished condition, which is just great. We've been waiting for this for a long time. Also, baptism. Last week we talked about forgiving yourself, and what we said was that a great way to accentuate this and actually, you know, kind of put the icing on the cake, so to speak, is to celebrate what you've done, celebrate forgiving yourself. And there's no better way to do that than getting baptized. Getting baptized is an act of obedience to Jesus Christ. It's an act of solidarity with Christians who have followed Jesus all down through the centuries. And it's something that you'll want to do. It reminds us, it symbolizes being washed from our sins, forgiven and becoming part of God's family. So if you haven't been baptized, we I think have about seven people so far getting baptized. If you would like to get baptized, I hope you'll make that a priority. We're going to be talking today again about forgiveness, and it's deciding to forgive. You have to choose. You have to decide. If you just wait, it will never happen. So it's deciding to forgive. Why do we have to do that? It's because Sin creates pain. Sin creates unhappiness. Happiness is defined as having peace, me having peace with God and peace with others and peace within. And the peace we're going to be talking about today, the kind of peace we're going to be talking about today is peace between me and God because sometimes we get angry with God. So what happens when we get hurt by something no matter who it is, we ruminate about it. You know, we, we play it and we pause it and we rewind it and pause it and we play it and, re, and just keep on going and on and on and on. The alternative is revenge. Say, I'm just going to get even with the person who did this to me. Or we can stuff it down inside, you know, which is kind of like storing dynamite in your basement and going down there and smoking a cigarette. Or you can forgive. And forgive, forgiveness is the only thing that actually heals us. How do you forgive? Well, it's when a person says, I decided, I decided to restore their humanity. They're not just summarized by what they did to me. I decided to give up my right to get even. And then I revise my feelings. And you're going to be seeing this a little bit later on in the talk today. If you don't forgive, what happens is this bitterness goes down inside, and it eventually hardens and, and gets to, becomes a toxic in down inside. It's pride which, you know, pain for me and pain for other people. And it squeezes our heart. It twists our heart out of shape. When we forgive ourselves, which is what we talked about last week, it's putting our regret, putting our sin, putting our failure, whatever that is, taking it out of the windshield of our lives and putting it into the rearview mirror and shrinking it down and seeing it eventually disappear over time as we move on. Okay, so... Today we're going to talk about forgiving God, which sounds like a very strange topic, I'm guessing, okay, because uh, he forgives us, but why would we ever need to forgive him? Well, most of the time, it's because of pain. When something happens to a child, something awful happens to a child, you know, and they're, they either lose their life or they get hurt permanently or, you know, just briefly, you know, the question that gets raised in our hearts is, where in the world was God when this happened? 
pain raises that question. In a book called Disappointment with God, which is a great book, a guy by the name of Philip Yancey, he talks about a good friend of his by the name of Megan, and she had two children who were born with cystic fibrosis. And I'm not sure if you're familiar with that disease, but it's devastating. Most children do not survive into adulthood. Her first child, Joey, was just this bright, happy, all-American boy. He died at the age of 12. Her daughter, Peggy, seemed to keep on going. She made it into her teens, made it through high school, made it into college, had a number of different crises, but then things started going downhill for her. She's 23, she's in the hospital, things are desperate, and people are all praying for her, praying for Megan, praying for Peggy, that she'll be able to survive this. Megan says that as Megan screamed and cried in pain, she held her and she comforted her, but there was no answer, and Peggy died. And the thought that Megan said ran through her head at that time as all these people were praying, all the friends are praying, and as Peggy is suffering, is why would God sit on his hands and do nothing as my daughter died? That's a good question. It's a reality in our relational world that we'd rather not admit, and here's what it is. Let me just summarize it if I can. If you're friends with somebody long enough, they will probably either hurt you or disappoint you. That's just a fact. If you're married, you know this, right? <laughs> Somebody described, you know, uh, marriage as kind of a telephone call in the middle of the night. First there's the ring, and then there's this rude awakening. But, you know, what happens is you're brought up against somebody else's life, and you grate on each other. And I kind of illustrated it like this. I hope it's helpful. You know, like here's my life, and, you know, we try and figure out before we marry somebody whether or not we mesh together, but inevitably there's a point in our lives that sticks somebody else. And this happens, you know, just because we're men and women, very different and so on. And what happens is that this creates pain and you have to do something about it. And so the, the, the solution to that is you either pull away and distance yourself, sometimes permanently, or you have to figure out how are we going to reconcile this? How are we going to work this out? And so, you know, here's my life, and here's the other person's life, and what actually brings together is love, brings things together is love, in particular love, because it cushions all these different points, and then respect and patience and faith, and especially in our relationship with God. Now, here's the deal. We expect to be disappointed by people. We expect that, okay? But what happens when you get disappointed and hurt by God? That's what we don't expect. We never expect that. And so my question to you this morning, some of you have experienced this, and if you haven't, just wait. What are you going to do with the pain? And sometimes the resentment that builds up. I want to talk about forgiving God. Even though it sounds and smells a little bit like blasphemy, I'm pretty sure that God is fine with us talking about that because he talks about that, you know, in his word, in the Bible. You know, and you find all kinds of people there who struggled in their relationship with God and at times, you know, were in pain. There was pain between them and God. Now, here's the question. How do you, you know, blame a being? How do you confront a being who could, you know, nuke you in milliseconds or send a herd of a thousand rabid pigs through your house, you know, and, and, you know, mess up everything that you own? 
Because, you know, you know, influential and powerful people don't usually take kindly to this. I mean, if you doubt me, just go to Iran and criticize the government or go, you know, to some other place, you know, in Syria or North Korea and see what happens. You know, you're going to pay a price for it. The story I want to talk to, the, talk to you today is, is about Job. Job was a contemporary of Abraham. And I'll tell you, he presses this issue with God through, you know, pretty much the entire book that he writes. Now, Job loves God. That's, that's, you know, seen in everything. He's faithful to God. But he has a catastrophe that comes along and, first of all, takes away everything he owns. It takes away his servants. It takes away his, you know, it takes away all of his property and takes away all of his livestock. And then even takes away in this freak windstorm, takes away all of his children. Now, he spends 35 chapters after that, basically, his ongoing challenge is, come on, God, don't hide. Come down here. Come on. Come and face me like a man. That's kind of his challenge. Now, what God does challenge in this book is Job's ability and capacity to see the bigger picture. And we're going to talk about that as we move on. more modern version of that pain is in a book called A Grief Observed. You're familiar with C.S. Lewis. He actually wrote a book called The Problem of Pain. And he gets quite philosophical in it and, and describes it and so on, you know, does a great job until he experiences pain. He marries a woman by the name of Joy, and his joy is taken away. They're only married, you know, for months before she dies of cancer. And he writes this book, and I'll tell you, he rails at God. He actually has to publish it under a pseudonym because of the fact that he is so angry with God. In fact, he implies that God's a monster. But you see this in people who love God. We love David. But I'm telling you, in a lot of his psalms, he basically accuses God of being absent and uninterested. And he challenges God. He basically says, why don't you just show up? Why do you seem so absent, like you're off on a vacation at the lake when I'm going through the painful moments of my life? Now, here's what I know. God as we see in all these instances, he's kind and compassionate and even-tempered, and he would never use his overwhelming power to crush us when we come to him with our questions. And so if you have questions, if you have doubts, if you're frustrated and angry, I just, you know, yell if you need to. Come after him. Tell him. There's this uh, movie out. I don't know if you've ever seen it. It's an old movie called The Apostle starring Robert Duvall. And he's this, you know, typical guy, you know, who's a preacher and he, you know, gets into all the trouble that sometimes preachers do and stuff like this. But uh, so this one night he's upstairs in his house at home, you know, and, and he's yelling and everything like this, you know, up there and throwing stuff around, furniture's crashing. One of the neighbors calls the home, and his mom answers the phone, wakes her up. She answers the phone, and this person basically says, what's going on? And, and she says, oh, she says, that's my son praying. Sometimes he talks to the Lord, and sometimes he yells at the Lord. <laughs> and here's my point. If you're angry with God, frustrated, disappointed, what he allow, about what he allows and what he doesn't allow, then go to him, yell at him if you have to, pound on his chest, because he can take it. What is even more dangerous is silence. See, no relationship, and this is another important point to understand in your whole relational world, no relationship can survive a buildup of anger without communication. 
And that's why, you know, Jesus said, if you've got a problem with somebody, go to them. Don't wait. Talk about it and deal with it. That's what we're told to do. So no relationship can survive a buildup of anger without communication. That's why it is so important to talk to God about what's going on. You know, in talking about anger, you know, Apostle Paul says, be angry, but don't sin. And the point is, if you're angry and you don't deal with it and you know, in some way, you're probably going to sin. Now, let's talk about what we get angry and frustrated and sometimes outraged at God for, okay? I think maybe the basic thought here is, I'm a good person. I don't deserve this. Or they're good people. They don't deserve that. So let's just start with a description of Job, Job to, you know, kind of straighten this out. There was once a man named Job who lived in the land of Uz. He was blameless a man of complete integrity. Now, anybody here who can say, that's described me like in that book? <laughs> no, maybe not. He feared God. He stayed away from evil. He had seven sons and three daughters. He owned 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 teams of oxen, and 500 female donkeys. He had many servants. He was, in fact, the richest person in that entire area. In other words, he was a person that everybody looked up to. Like, we know rich people. But he was a rich, good person. He helped a lot of people, so we know that about him. Now, when Job first lost everything, you know, unfortunately did not lose his wife who basically said, why don't you just curse God and die, okay? But when he lost everything, even his children in this kind of freak windstorm, listen to what he says, the Lord gave me all I have, it's his to take away. Blessed is his name. Now, I'll tell you, that's way beyond me. That's not what I would say, but that's what he said. Final straw, though, was his health. And so we find him in this book. He's been stricken with this icky skin disease. He's sitting on a pile of ashes, you know, scraping the pus off his sores with a piece of pottery, and he's broken. Three of his friends come and, and say, we're just going to come and, and see you and so on. And so they sat with him quietly for an entire week, didn't say a word. And that was, they probably shouldn't have said a word because it was when they started talking that everything kind of, you know, unleashes here. Now, their message is quite typical. You probably heard it. Well, if you hadn't sinned, you wouldn't be in pain, you know, because, you know, if you get in pain, if things go wrong, it means that you've obviously upset God and he's allowing this stuff to come into your heart, come into your life. So, after about 35 chapters of cues, defend, accuse, defend, and this heated dialogue with these three guys, you know, and it's interesting because what these guys say about God's character is actually quite accurate, but what they said about Job wasn't because they're kind of applying the law of karma to him, you know. Well, hey, what goes around comes around. You know, you obviously did something wrong, straighten it out, and God will bless you again. Job's real problem, though, is God's silence. That's what he talks about again and again. I mean, it would have been different if he had been sitting there in that ash heap, you know, and God had come by and said, hey, Job, how are you making out, man? You know, put his arm around his shoulder and said, listen, I know this is really tough right now, and I, I'm sure that you're going through extreme pain, but you need to know that I love you more than you would ever realize, and I'm going to straighten this all out, and I'm going to honor you once again before all your friends, so don't sweat it. Well, if he'd done that, that would have been okay. But what he's basically saying is, why the silence, God? Why the silence? You know, 
If you have a cell phone, you know, and, and so on, and you ring, the, the thing rings, you know, and you look at it, you think, oh, okay, well, <laughs> that's, you know, Rogers. I don't want to talk to them right now. And you just, you know, delete it and so on and keep on going. If it's your friend, though, friends answer the phone. And that's what gets him about God. He says, I'm praying, I'm talking to God. And it's like, you know, he's busy or he's not answering. He doesn't care enough to pick up the phone. And that makes us angry because we know we need to communicate. Most of the people in the Bible who loved and served God went through difficult times. And always they're puzzled by his silence, by his actions. You know, Abraham and Sarah, you know, they're called away from all civilization. They're living, on, living in tents and Canaan land and so on. And God calls them out there and said, I'm going to make you into many nations. And they sit out there for 25 years, waiting. Then it's Joseph. <laughs> Joseph, you know, God gives him this incredible dream for his life, what he's going to do through him. And right about that same time, his brothers, who are jealous of him, sell him into slavery. He ends up in Egypt. He, you know, kind of climbs out of the, climbs to the top of the heap there and then gets thrown in the pit. Seventeen years of the best years of his life are gone. There's David. He's anointed as God's choice as the next king of Israel. God says, man after my own heart. And then he loses everything. He loses his job. He loses his wife. He loses, you know, his place in the kingdom. He loses everything, including his family, and he has to run, spend the next 17 years running from the king. And what's fascinating is that Jesus, you know, God's anointed son, son of David, it's interesting what he does when he quotes from the cross. He doesn't quote Psalm 23, you know, that, you know, even when I pass through the shadow, valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil because you're there. Your rod and your staff comfort me. He actually quotes from the chapter before, Psalm 22. says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So almost all these people experience this. Now let's just be clear. Our spiritual anger and resentment are almost always about our expectations. I expected, but God didn't. And the same is almost true in almost all of our relationships, right? Our relational world, you know? You're at work, you know, and you expected that your boss was going to, but he didn't. You know, you expected that your wife or your husband was going to, but they didn't. They hurt your expectations for what was going to. And what happens is this stuff makes God seem inconsistent, makes him seem unfair. Let me just give you a few examples of this, okay? Uh, I'm just going to kind of throw these out there so maybe you can relate to some of them. One of them is unanswered prayer. You know, we pray and we pray and, and we're expecting that God's going to do something and what we get is silence. You know, sometimes people in our world, maybe some of you, have ongoing pain or disability. And you're thinking, why this? How come I get this and other people seem to get a blessed life? Hypocrites. <laughs> I'm buying word. Oh, yes. There's always the people, you know, who come in, the religious hypocrites who come in, and they're pointing their fingers and they're judging you and stuff, and it just makes you mad, makes you angry. By the way, you know, Jesus got angry too, okay? And then there's injustice in the world. I mean, you look at the mess. You got little kids who don't have clean water to drink, and they get diseases, and they die from stupid things. And it's so unfair. You think, God, what are you doing? up there. And there are the fat cats of the world. I like this especially because it has to do with cats, right? You know, 
Sometimes we get angry with God because it seems like there are the people in this world, the Harvey Weinsteins and the Jeffrey Epsteins and so on, you know, they seem to be making all this money and they seem to be doing so well and they seem to be getting away with all their stuff. You think, what's going on? There's a guy in the Bible who writes a psalm actually about this, Psalm 73, and if you want to read it sometime, it's really, really good. Because he said, surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost slipped. I had nearly lost my foothold, for I envied the the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. And he goes on to describe them, the fat cats of the world. He says, surely in vain have I kept my heart pure and have washed my hands in innocence. All day long I've been afflicted, and every morning brings new punishments. And they seem to be getting away with it. And God's supposed to be fair? The final issue is one that we're sometimes a little bit hesitant to admit, but it's when our pain, our pain and our isolation is actually the result of our own bad decisions. And to bring that up is just a sore spot, right? It's like God rubbing salt in the wound and so on. A woman from a previous church had had, had uh, gastrointestinal surgery because she was getting so heavy that she was going to have a heart attack, and so they did the surgery. So sometimes I'd go to visit her, you know, she was a shut-in, and she would whine, you know, why is God doing this to me? And I wanted to say, I never did, but I wanted to say, mm, God didn't do that to you. <laughs> you know, you kind of did it like one forkful at a time. But we need to do something with this pain, right? So how do you forgive God? How do you forgive God? And the question is, what are you blaming him for? Okay? Because we get angry at God or we get angry at other people for what they owe us, something that they took from us. You know, Jesus taught us this. He says, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors, as we forgive the people who owe us. And so the question is, what does God owe you? What does God owe you? And why does he owe you that? So you have to think about that, you know. Does God owe you a proper, you know, happy, prosperous life? Does God owe you, you know, 90 years where you die with, you know, your bank account full and a smile on your face? Does God owe you, you know, children who make you proud and then produce, you know, amazing grandchildren that you can brag about? Does he owe you a blessing on every financial decision that you make? Does he owe you passing grades and entry into all the universities that you want to be a part of? What does God owe you? And I think that's a really important question to answer. What does God owe me? Because usually, you know, our anger surrounds something along that line. A few weeks ago, I was on a run uh, on a road that goes by our house, you know, and like most roads, it's up and down, up and down, up and down. Except when I get to the beginning, uh, the end of the first half, last kilometer, it like goes very steep hill, you know, and I can't make that hill in one run. I usually have to stop, you know, or not stop, but I walk instead of running, you know, and keep on going to the top. So a couple days ago, I was out there running, and it's like 30 degrees and humid out, you know, and I'm soaking wet, and I'm come, I come up to the top of that hill, and there's this guy who's just come puffing up the hill on his bicycle, his uh, uh, mountain bike and so on up there, and he says, that's quite a hill. And I said, yes, it is. But you see, the good news for me is that I had kind of reached the top of it, and now I was going to get, you know, a kilometer of running downhill, which is a lot better, <laughs> a lot easier. Now, you may have had parents who walked uphill both ways to school and so on, but usually the way it works in life is that, you know, you walk uphill and then you get downhill, and you walk uphill and you get downhill, and so on. And you don't get to, you don't get to actually go downhill 
until you, you know, if you've, unless you've walked uphill. But we sometimes, our expectation is God's going to, you know, give us kind of this easy downhill run. That's what we want. And yet, that's not even realistic. As you know, the first step in forgiving anyone is deciding to forgive. Deciding to forgive. And I'm telling you, it doesn't come naturally with other people, and it won't come naturally with God. Like, you know, the bitterness and anger that you feel, it's not going to just go away. Because what comes naturally is to not forgive, to kind of let the thing continue to come. And, and the thing with God is that he doesn't react. You know, we can lay down on the floor and pull tantrum. He doesn't come along and say, oh, oh, there, 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 there. He doesn't attend our black tie pity parties, you know. He just doesn't. If we're interested, though, and that's what we see in this book, is he will show us who he really is. And that's the step, isn't it? Because when you forgive somebody, you have to restore their humanity. You have, instead of just seeing them as the point of resistance, as the liar or the cheat or whatever that you call them. In this case, you have to restore God's divinity to him. Because he is God. He is God. Let him be God. There's a passage in the Bible that we visited before that I think helps us with this. It's written by James, who was the earthly brother of Jesus and also a leader in the early church. This is what he says. And I would never say this to anybody because I'm not that, I'm not that important. I'm not that good at it. But he says this. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds. Why? Well, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. Now, truth about me is that any trial and difficulty is too much trial and difficulty, okay? And how many, how many of you would agree? And Jesus, in his humanity, I mean, it seems like, you know, he kind of was there too, you know? He knew that the only way that, to forgive the world and accomplish his mission was to go to a cross, and yet in the garden, as he's facing the cross, he prays to the Father. He says, Father, if you're willing, please take this cup of suffering away from me. So it wasn't like, I want to go to the cross tomorrow. It, it, that wasn't his at all. Um, some of you have been watching the Olympics. Aren't these people incredible athletes? I mean, just amazing. But you know as you watch them that they didn't get that way by sitting around, you know, and, and drinking, you know, their, their Starbucks and eating Tim Hortons donuts. Like, it's a lot of work because muscles have to be trained and they have to be worked. And that's true with any kind of strength. Steel has to get pounded, has to get forged, you know. Trees, if you want a tree to survive, it has to get bent by the wind so that it survives. High-impact plastics, the kind that they use in your car, it all takes that kind, of, that kind of pressure in it. James says that trials and suffering test our faith. You know what that means, don't you? Because, you know, it's when we go through trials that we begin to doubt God's character. It's our faith in God's character and in his love and in his goodness. And perseverance, in other words, hanging in when you don't feel like it, when you don't have the answers, has to finish the work so that your maturity can be complete. So I brought these two. I, brought, I had the green apple here before and so on. Which of these would you prefer if you're looking for a snack during the day? Anybody here who would eat the green apple? You don't want to do that unless you're going to get sick, okay? We used to put these on sticks and throw them, you know, because they're really good for nothing. I mean, they're, they're wonderful, beautiful. This is a perfect apple, except it's not complete. This is what a complete apple looks like. This is maturity. 
And that's what God is doing in our lives. He's growing us up. And then God, the only one who knows how to give us that kind of wisdom, James says this, don't just stand there. If you, if you don't have the perspective that you need in any given situation, it says, ask. He says, if any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. Now, this is a painting that my dad did years ago. Let's see if I can lug this thing up here and put it on here like this, okay. Now, I was here for every part of this painting. Like, I remember when he was just sketching it out on the canvas, and then I remember when he actually made the frame for the painting, which is made out of black walnut. I remember then when he finally got the, the colors. What he loved about this painting was the fact of all these different people. You got some guy, you know, is driving a, a horse across the ice and so on. You got people ice skating back here, and you got, you know, somebody talking out here, and somebody with oxen, and somebody back here. All these different people in, in this painting. Now, the painting of your life isn't done yet. In fact, if you want perspective, like the perspective on yours would be like this corner down here. That's all you see. And we don't get to see the full picture until it's done. And that's the point. That's the point. God says, until you can describe the whole painting, don't complain about the little piece that you see. It's not that he doesn't take our complaints. It's not that he doesn't comfort us. It's just that there's so much more going on in this painting in what he is doing with our lives. He's the artist, and we just need to wait on him and let him finish up what he's doing. So I'm going to put this back down here and try to make sure it doesn't fall on the floor, okay? New Testament, the record of the biggest shift in human history, uh, talks about the fact that there are all these shifts in history, and some of them involve pain and testing. The Old Testament doesn't really say a whole lot about it, but it's the New Testament that basically says this is an important part of what God is doing in this world. It's an important part of what he's doing in your life. And they also teach us that we're only going to, you know, we're not going to be able to see the bigger picture until we get into eternity. That's the piece that most of the pe people in our world system are missing. See, if you don't believe in eternity, then that means that you've got to have it all here. It means that everything has to fit together and be perfect here. James goes on to speak to this issue. He says, blessed is the one who perseveres under trial without, because having stood the test, that person will receive the crown of life. You don't get it in this life. The crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love him. And that's really the issue, isn't it? Is there, in fact, something beyond this life? Is there, in fact, something that is way, 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 way more important and bigger than any little bit of pain that I go through? It's hard to see. James adds one more caution here, and his caution is don't accuse God of evil. And he's looking at, you know, it's basically looking at the evil things in the world and the pain in kids and all this stuff that happens and then blaming him for it. And the accusation is basically is, well, yeah, okay, he's great. I mean, he can make a universe and all that stuff, but he's not good. And that is a dangerous place to be. James says this, he says, when tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. Don't be deceived my dear brothers and sisters, every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. He chose to give us birth through the word of truth that we might be a kind of first fruits 
of all he created. God is doing something big, and what he's doing in our lives is important. But we have to give him the space to do it. So here's the deal. What this is saying is every good gift that you have, every good thing that's ever happened in your life comes from him. Now here's what's interesting. Many times, you know, we will grab credit for all the good things, you know, and then we'll basically, when it comes to the bad things, point our finger at God and blame him for it. Now here's what I'm trying to say in all this. Letting God be God is believing that God sees an infinitely bigger picture than you do, that he loves you, that he gave a son for you, that he let his son be humiliated and go through extreme pain and suffer on a cross. And the bigger picture is what he is doing through you and what he will do through your life, something that will go on for all of eternity. And that's what you can't see. My dad whom I love dearly, who did these paintings and did all the carvings I've showed you over time. You know, he had heart bypass surgery back in 1989. Now, I was an adult at that point. I'm telling you, I, like I saw him go into surgery and saw him come out. I wouldn't have wanted to be in there watching the surgery, okay? But let's say, you know, that I was somehow three or four years old, and I walked in while they're doing the surgery. And I see him laying there on a stainless steel table, you know, and he's motionless, lifeless. They've got his chest hacked open. There's blood all over the place, and he's surrounded by people wearing masks and carrying sharp knives, okay? Now, what would I think as a three- or four-year-old? I'd be running at them. I'd try to grab one of the knives. Don't hurt my dad. Not understanding that they're actually saving his life. See, there are things about God. There are things about what he does, restoring His divinity means allowing him to be God without forcing him to just explain everything he does because he probably couldn't. Faith takes that. To forgive, to restore, you know, a person's humanity and then restore God's divinity, that's what we're supposed to do. And then the next step in forgiving is giving up your right to get even. You know, someone said, you know, your arms are too short to box with God. That's a frustration, isn't it? And sometimes what happens is we see ourselves victims of stuff that God's doing, you know, and we think, I can't even fight back, you know? You know how we get even? This is how we get even with God. God is here, you know, with grace and strength and hope and peace and so on, but our anger becomes this barrier between us and God. And so we think, you know, like kids who resent their parents, they think, well, I'm just going to ignore them. I'm just going to hate them. I'll, I'll pretend like they don't exist. And that's sometimes what we do with God. And this anger comes between us and God. And we think we're going to pay him back. Sometimes it gets, you know, into basically believing lies about him and then resenting him, blaming him for the problems. And then at times we get into slandering God. Like, you know, instead of telling our kids that God is a good God and he's faithful and he knows what's going on, you know, we imply that he's a monster. And we, we slander his name. And this eventually leads into hatred for God. Sometimes we just, you know, break off our relationship with him and we decide I'm just going to punish him with my silence. I just won't talk to him. I'll just pretend like he doesn't exist. And here's the deal. If you want to get rid of the awful bitterness and emptiness and aloneness that you feel, you know, 
that you feel inside, there comes a point where you have to let God be God and believe that he is good, believe that he is kind, believe that he is compassionate, and that one day you will have answers to the questions that you have. You have to give up your right to get even with him. Final step in forgiving someone is revising your feelings toward them. You know, when it, when it comes to God, it's coming to the realization that he is not the author of your pain. He's not torturing you like a 12-year-old with a magnifying glass burning ants, you know. He has not wronged you. And despite how it looks and how, you know, the enemy of your soul tries to make it look, he's the liar. That's not true. I don't know if you've ever, you know, read the book of Job or, or not, uh, but, you know, we talk about the patience of Job, but that's not really what the book is about. We know when we read the book of Job, oh, yeah, that's the guy that, you know, lost everything he had and lost his kids and stuff, and he was really angry with God, you know, and so on, and then got it all restored back to him once he got his attitude right. But that's not what the book is about. First chapter of this book of Job actually gives us the inside scoop on what's going on in Job's life, and it doesn't start with Job. It starts with God. And there was a supernatural realm that Job never saw. And it's a supernatural realm that we don't see either. And there's this meeting with all the angels and the beings who love God. And somehow, you know, Satan crashes the meeting. And God is basically pointing out Job and talking about his faithfulness and talking about his blamelessness and talking about what kind of a person he is as a core. Now, so Satan kind of crashes the meeting and he says, yeah, 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 you know, he's going you know, to believe in you and he's going to love you, you know, because you're his, you know, he's your pet. And so the implication is, you know, that human beings are like dogs, you know, and if you give them treats, he says, you give Job a treat, he'll do anything you ask. Give human beings a treat, they'll do anything you ask. You just keep giving them treats, giving them treats, giving them treats, and they'll just do what you want and, you know, <laughs> come back with love and everything will be fine. But you take, take that away, you don't give him treats, watch him turn on you then, he'll bite you. And so there's this wager between, between Satan and God, and God says, he's, he's bigger than that, he's deeper than that. And that's what was happening at the supernatural level. And that's a question, really, that you know, we all need to ask. Will you love God even if he doesn't do what you want? Even if he's not the ultimate helicopter daddy, you know, comes swooping in, you know, and, and takes care of you, and, and he's kind of the genie in the bottle and gives you whatever you ask for. Will you love him if he doesn't do that? See, the point is, Job, in Job's life, and the point in our lives is, there is something huge going on behind the scenes that we don't see. In Job's case, it was God basically believing in humanity that they would love him. If they were given the opportunity, that they would love him, that they would follow him. This was immense. This is huge. And so Job does what people do who are confused and angry. You know, the hurt pours out, you know, and, and Job pounds on God's chest. And, you know, he says, where were you when I needed you? How come you don't answer your phone, you know? Just show up. Just say something. Just do something so I know that you're there. And then God does. And true to his character, you know, he doesn't, you know, kick Job around the room, you know. He basically kind of sits him down, you know, kind of ties him to a chair and puts him in front of the Discovery Channel. And he goes through all these things that are going on, you know, the whales and, you know, and the, 
and the ostriches and all these different creatures and stuff. Can you explain that? Can you explain that? Can you tell me what's going on here? Can you explain how I made them? Can you, can you kind of describe this for me and tell me about the DNA and tell me about what's going on? And, of course, Job can't. See, the first step in forgiving God is letting him be God. Will you restore to God his godness, his divinity? And he says, will you let me be who I am, infinitely great and infinitely loving and sometimes mysterious? It's in this moment that Job immediately lets go of his right to get even with God and blame God. Listen to what he says. I know that you can do anything, and no one can stop you. You asked, who is this who questions my wisdom with such ignorance? It's I. I was talking about things I knew nothing about, things way too wonderful for me. I only heard about you before, but now I have seen you with my own eyes. I take back everything I said, and I sit in dust and ashes to show my repentance." Job restores God's godness. I was talking about things I knew nothing about. He gives up his right to get even. I take back everything I said, and he revises his feelings. I sit in dust and ashes to show my repentance. See, repentance means to change your mind, to change your mind, to revise how you think. And this story stands as a testimony through thousands of years that God can hear our complaints, that God, you know, can see how we act under pressure, that it matters to him, and that he's greater than anything we will ever face. Let me close with this suggestion, and that is for you to lengthen your timeline when you look at Abraham, Abraham you know, was probably born about 2000 B.C. and so on. He lived for 175 years. And of that 175 years, probably 25 years, and they weren't horrible years. They were just years of questioning. 25 years. Joseph was you know, probably born about 1820 B.C., somewhere around there. He lived to be 130 years old. So, you know, up till 1690 B.C., I'm just guessing at this, 17 of those years were painful years, and all the years after that were amazing. Job, probably born about 2000 B.C., I don't know when he died, let's say 1800, you know, B.C. and so on. One year of his life was this horrible, painful, no good, very bad year. One year. What about your life? What about your life? See, are, how are you looking at it? Is it like you end at the grave and you got to stuff everything into your life and everything has to go right before then? Or will you look beyond it? Like you say, what's your drop-dead date? You know, what, what, in other words, when do you have to have everything done? Like, what is your drop-dead date? You have to get everything done here? Or are you looking into eternity? Makes a huge difference, you know. Huge difference. So we see our lives from a very earthly perspective, and we understand, you know, what God was doing, what God was building, and, and we can see how their suffering accomplished something immeasurable and good. And I just want to encourage you this morning, extend your timeline into eternity because that's where it ends up. This isn't pie in the sky in the by and by, you know. This is reality. This is just perspective. It's seeing the whole picture of what God is doing in your life, the whole adventure. Let God be God. So this morning, I'd like us to close 
with a declaration. Okay? This comes from Lori, my wife. This is, she's the first one I ever heard to say this, and we talk about this a lot in our home. God is God. He doesn't owe me an explanation. So say it with me. God is God. He doesn't owe me an explanation. God is God. He doesn't owe me an explanation. Let's pray. God, we go through pain in our lives, and I know that some of those who are listening to me, they're right in the middle of the pain and angry because it hurts so badly. It doesn't make any sense to them. It feels so unfair. They call out to you, and and it feels like all they're getting back is silence. And I pray that you will help them to persevere, to just persevere to just make it through and trust in your character and in your integrity. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.